0: Good morning, good to see you. Micah chapter 2 is where we're at. So go ahead and find your way to Micah. You know, we just sang a song um, called The Heart of Worship, a really old school song that's been around for a really long time. And what that song is doing is it's modeling repentance. It says worship is all about Jesus, and I've made it about something else. God, I'm sorry. That's the simple process of repentance. And if you aren't living daily in repentance, if you aren't weekly coming to church with a heart broken over the things that breaks God's heart, with a, with a heart of sorriness, it just says, God, I'm sorry I've done that. I receive your forgiveness. You're not living the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is, is a life of joyfully receiving the forgiveness of God. And that starts that cycle is repenting. God, I'm sorry for making worship about something else. What is idolatry? Idolatry is making worship about something other than Jesus. It's putting something else on that ultimate place besides Jesus. Man, I love how the songs this morning, we try to do this every week, but the songs feed into the text that we're going to look at. All right, so um, Micah is an Old Testament prophet and he is calling out this morning and this is why our title looks this way he's calling out the crooked people in the land and guess who the crooked people in the land are it's the leaders the leaders there's there's a saying that leaders say sometimes it says speed of the leader speed of the team You ever followed a leader that's kind of mopey and kind of drained? It drains everyone. If you follow a leader who's super anxious and worried, do you notice the whole team, the whole organization, sort of like takes on the worry and anxiety of the leader? Conversely, if you have a a leader that's joyful, if you have a leader that's hopeful, that sort of tends to permeate as well. Well, here's what's happening in Micah's day. The leaders are crooked. Specifically, the politicians... And the prophets are using the power that they have given by God for personal gain rather than gifting goodness to other people. So that's kind of where we are at. Now, what does the word crooked meant mean? It means a couple different things. It can mean bent, twisted, or out of shape. Some of you have braces in this room. The reason you have braces is because you have or had crooked teeth, right? If you have a crooked spine, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. You want your spine in alignment because it helps all other parts of your body. So crooked can mean bent or twisted, but it also means something else. What What does it mean if I said, oh, those crooked politicians, what am I saying about them? Call it out they're corrupt. What else does crooked mean? Oh man, that car dealer, that used car dealer, he was so crooked. What am I saying? He was dishonest. So crooked can mean physically bent, broken, twisted, out of alignment, but it can also mean dishonest. It can mean, man, that person is corrupt. And that's really fitting for what we see in Micah 2. It means both of those things. Both of them are found here. The leaders are dishonest. They are crooked. The prophets are preaching a twisted, out-of-alignment message with the truth. And that leads to life being broken. When you have people in power not using their power for good but for evil it leads to broken society broken relationships things that get out of shape so happy fourth of july to you all today this is my version of wearing red white and blue do you see it it's there it's all 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 the colors are represented here um what are we celebrating on the fourth of july tell me some of the things that we're celebrating by the way we have kids in service with us Uh, most often after the music you guys split off to kids on the lawn Um, and many of the kids in this room are my kids so welcome family good to see you guys Um, what are we celebrating kids and adults alike what are we celebrating on the fourth of july what is it independence okay what else Getting to light stuff on fire, right? I mean, if you go to a place like Gilroy as part of Santa Clara County where we celebrate getting to light things on fire. This was one of the top holidays for me as a kid. Like I got to play with fire and my parents not only said no, but they encouraged it. That's growing up in the 70s. You guys missed out. Um, so we're celebrating our independence. We're celebrating freedom, right? These are some of the themes that kind of come out on 4th of july now think about this specifically what is it freedom from what is the independence from this isn't hard not a trick question here don't think the jesus answer just answer the question what are we celebrating on the 4th of july independence from what from tyranny from who great britain right? Not so Great Britain, right? Like we are celebrating uh, the fact that we're no longer uh, under, under foreign rule, right? It's the birth of our nation. That's what we're celebrating on Independence Day. We just sang this song, there's power in the name of Jesus to do what? To break every chain. You go back to Luke 4, Jesus' very first sermon, he grabs the scroll, he reads from it, and he says, um, he says that there's a Messiah coming, Who's going to do a lot of things. He's going to preach good news to the poor. But he's going to free the captives. He's going to break the chain of those who are enslaved. And then he puts it away. And he says this to everyone there in his hometown. He says, today, this Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah is fulfilled in me. And all his hometown church clapped and cheered and set off fireworks. No! They actually tried to kill him. You want to talk about a hostile uh, audience, right? Like he preaches that message, he says, Hey, today that's being fulfilled right now. And they're like, Boo! And they try to kill Jesus because they thought he was blaspheming. They thought he was claiming to be God when he wasn't, when actually he was. So we need freedom. Catch this because of crooked politicians. We needed freedom because there was oppression going on from those in power, specifically politicians and even prophets in the olden days that used their power for personal gain rather than to serve the people. So politicians were crooked. Priests and prophets were crooked. Do you know who revolted? It's one more P. It's the Puritans. There were Puritans in politics that didn't agree with what was going on. Some of those broke away and they set sail to run from the oppression. Happy birthday, America. That's what we're celebrating today. That's what we're talking about today. The Puritans said no to serving people and pleasing people instead of honoring God. That was a really, really noble and bold thing to do. Now, isn't it true that Americans see 4th of July one way and the British people see it a different way? What do you think people in England are celebrating today? Maybe sadness. Yeah, remember that country we used to rule and dominate? And they have like this little sad face and they're just kind of bummed out. I don't know what they do on 4th of July. I don't think they set off fireworks though. I don't think they high five each other. Yeah, we lost another, you know, power that we had power over and now we don't. It's just kind of interesting to think about history through different lenses, right? Um, Here's one thing that if you want to jot this down, this is going to sort of come up again and again. Power is like a lens. Power colors the way that we see events. Those who are in power, those who don't have power, view history very, very differently. You might remember an event very, very differently because you possessed the power or you didn't possess the power. And sometimes when you lose power, you look back on your own life and you see events differently. You go, wow, power is a lens. I saw it immediately one way because I was in power in that situation or relationship. So, not all of England, but their own leaders used power to control rather than power to protect and to guide. Hear me really clearly. Power is a gift from God. Leadership is a gift from God. Head-subordinate relationships are all through the Old and New Testament as a gift from God. Leadership is not bad. There's a certain sense of people that just go, I revolt against all authority. That's not even true. Because every life has an authority. You're just saying, I'm rejecting this authority in front of me. Sadly, we humans come from a long line of going off course when given power. Last Saturday, right out here, we had a car wash for the youth. And because of your generosity and the generosity of our neighbors, it was one of the most successful financial um, fundraisers per person, like if you spread it out for sort of how small of a church we are, of any car wash or any fundraiser I've ever done for youth camp. Amazing. Beyond that, there was loads of fun and loads of relational uh, bonding that went on. But here's something that I observed. My little buddy Eli, who's here with us this morning, um, he came and joined. He washed cars all day long, even though he's not even going to camp. And the youth group thought that was so cool that they voted to make him an honorary youth group member for last Tuesday's beach trip. So Eli got to sort of go forward in time just for one beach trip, and now he's back in fifth grade. But here's what I want to bring this up. Eli is out there, and partway through... Um, he is, he's watching me and other people do this. As cars would pull in, um, I would go and talk to cars and say, hey, we're, welcome, thank you so much for coming to our car wash. Hey, we're gonna get you in as soon as possible. When that car pulls out, I want you to pull straight up. And we're kind of orchestrating this because there's kids and hoses and buckets and all kinds of things happening. And then when cars were there, we had to kind of direct them and pull them in as to where the best spot to park was. Well, partway through, um, Eli starts directing cars and i see him walking over to the windows and he's doing what i was doing before he's welcoming people he's saying hey uh, we'll get you in as soon as you can thanks for coming and his big bright smile i'm like man we're gonna make bank off this thing because little cute eli doing this and then he's directing cars and i'm kind of there as a safety net because this is a big deal we've got an incoming fifth grader directing cars and that can go really really bad Sometimes leaders are born, and they just sort of like, these things emerge, right? And I sort of saw these little leadership things uh, in Eli's hand. Um, Eli's leadership gift, Eli, that's a great thing, awesome. But, as old Uncle Ben reminds us in Spider-Man, over and over and over again, with great power comes what? Great responsibility, right? And he says it over and over, so we make sure that we get it. With great power comes great responsibility responsibility. It is great that you have leadership gifts, son. It's also good um, to have coverage like me watching because you directing a car in could have had a kid right there and could have had huge consequences to that, right? We come from a long line of human beings who not only struggle uh, with understanding the idea of with great power comes great responsibility, but also with power comes corruption, And with great power comes what? Great corruption. My daughter is dating a guy named Hector. Hector is a pastoral major in school. That means he's training to be a pastor. By the way, just for note, we are doing pie a pastor next week. We are also doing pie a pastor in training next week, which means Lucas gets to have pies thrown at him too. Yeah. All right, so be there next week. It's on video now. We can't go back on this. Pie a pastor, pie a pastor in training. I went to Hector and I said, Hector, let me give you this book. It's called Dangerous Calling. Dangerous Calling is a book written to pastors, and it expresses this idea that being a shepherd in God's church, being given the power in the church by God to serve and gift other people and protect other people and teach other people and lead other people, that's a really, really good thing, and it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous because with great power comes great responsibility, and with great power comes the potential for great corruption. That's exactly what we're seeing in Micah 2, and it all goes wrong. Here's the beauty. It doesn't have to lead to that. There's hope at the very end of chapter 2. In fact, if you start in Micah 1, and you go, Micah 1, 1, You start reading about Micah. He's a nobody from nowhere. Oh, cool, Micah 1, 2. You start going, it's a long, sad journey until you get to the very end of chapter two. That's the first ray of light that we see. It's like a beam of light that's gonna come bursting in. It's at the very end of our message this morning. So hang tight, we will get there. Um, By a quick way of review, one commentator said this, that Micah is 70% judgment and 30% restoration and deliverance. Um, I said this last week, that if you aren't, uncomfortable reading micah you're probably missing the message of micah you might in fact be prideful and just thinking that sin is always out there and never in here there's never something for you to repent about the problems that god is speaking through micah are seen today loud and clear for us to look at um last week um, i called the message it's time to face the music And when you see Spotify on fire, it's not a hot new playlist. It's judgment. It's the flames and fire of judgment coming upon the people in Micah's day. And there's sort of this like courtroom scene. A a, a subpoena is issued where it says, "Hero peoples, pay attention. The Lord is witness against you. It's like God coming down from his high place, and he's going to come and stand in judgment over the people. Mike also gives a preview of what a guilty verdict will look like. He says mountains will will melt when God comes in judgment. This is going to be serious business. The accusations are leveled against both Samaria and Jerusalem. Remember, that's northern kingdom, southern kingdom. What's the accusation? Idolatry. You've cheated on God. It's like spiritual adultery. It's cheating on your one husband, church. And then the sentence is read, Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country so that's chapter one there is hope there is rescue we will get there i promise but first more bad news here's a little truism in life okay in life sometimes things get worse before they get better Nod your head if you know this to be true, that sometimes things get worse before they get better. Can you think of a situation, I won't call you out, but can you think of a situation where you're like, it really did end up good, but man, it got a lot worse before it got better. Here's something interesting that happens in the medical field. Sometimes a doctor, because he or she cares for you, will re-break your arm. It's because your arm got broken and it began to heal in a bent or crooked way. Is it nice to have your arm broken? No, never. No discipline ever feels good in the moment. Ever. It's always painful. But those who are trained up by discipline will reap what? Righteousness. They'll reap straightness. They will reap functioning bodies sometimes a medical person will come and re-break your arm or your bone so that it can heal properly. That's getting worse before it gets better. Here's a maybe hypothetical, maybe realistic experience uh, that I have maybe or maybe not seen in my own life. It's really hot! Our van doesn't have air conditioning. It's really long getting to Yosemite. How much longer and how much hotter is it going to get? Now, hypothetical dad like me might be driving said van with children saying things in the back. And I think in my mind, well, it's 11 a.m. We're about to get to the hottest part of the journey. So answer, a lot longer and a lot hotter. That's the answer. On the way to beautiful Yosemite Valley, you have to travel through the Central Valley. And the Central Valley is hot in the middle of summer. We are heading to a place where there is beautiful restoration, lasting restoration, but it leads through a valley like the Central Valley called Rebuke. And here's what I want to encourage you, church, is this. On your way to Restoration Valley. Restoration Valley is Yosemite Valley. Is it worth it to ever get to Yosemite Valley? Yes! A thousand times yes. It's always worth it. On the way to Restoration Valley is rebuke. And so many people short-circuit the process because they don't want to sit with rebuke. So here's my plea to you. Do not shut down God as He works His restoration process. Restoration comes through rebuke. Fear and frustration and fatigue short-circuit great relationships that could be restored. Short-circuit great ministries that could be going on. It short-circuits the own work of your soul that God's trying to work on you because it's just too scary to confront past failures, past hurts. So don't give up on the way to restoration because you are being restored. Rebuked. I would say this about Micah. Don't quit on Micah. Don't get one and a half chapters into Micah and go, no wonder people don't want to read the Old Testament. They give it up because it's hard to read. It's 70% judgment. Who wants that? Let's go have a cupcake, right? That's kind of the mentality of some people. Don't do it. So remember, what are what are prophets? Prophets are alarm clocks. No one loves the sound of an alarm clock. But an alarm clock is giving you unwanted but vital truth. Hey, it's time to wake up. I don't want to hear it. Anyone ever break an alarm clock? Raise your hand. Now if you do it, it's your phone. (laughs) You got to be careful. I have broken alarm clocks in the past. That's how angry I get at alarm clocks. Um, God is slowly working on me with that. Alarm clocks loudly, annoyingly, and repeatedly tell you the truth. That's what Micah is doing in this chapter chapter two and in this chapter he's rebuking the leaders because the leaders are the oppressors now the word oppressor and oppression is really really big right now have you noticed this probably since last summer in san jose there was a massive flood going around the country about justice about what is right about oppressors about who's in power This conversation's gone on for more than a year in our country, and it's a huge topic, and I want to be really careful with words. One things I challenged you a couple weeks ago is be really clear with definitions when you're talking with people. If people call you an oppressor, if people say they're being oppressed, it's good to say, what do we mean by that? What's being talked about by oppression? So let me just put up the word oppression. This is right from the dictionary so that you could hear what I'm saying with it and, and, and how I'm using the word. Prolonged cruel or unjust treatment or control. That's what oppression is by definition, and that's how I'm using it. If you're taking notes this morning, and I encourage you to take notes because it helps you stay engaged, um, the first one I think you don't have to write down, but oppression is real. I just want to state openly right now, oppression is real. The Bible speaks to all of life, And it tells us what is. It doesn't just tell us what is above the surface, but below the surface. Micah chapter 1, I mean, chapter 2, verse 1. Look at it with me. It says Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Oppression is real. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Here's the first fill-in. You ready? Oppression is real obvious. Oppression comes in two flavors, obvious and sneaky. Some oppression is really, really obvious. As in those in power... Bully those who don't have power. Those with the microphone shout down those who don't have the microphone. Over and over we see this. Some oppression is really, really obvious. This happens all the time and is wicked to God. Here's the pattern we see. See if this rings true. Just in our own political system, see if this rings true. Those without power cry out to those in power no fair! And then they get amongst themselves and they speak against those in power and they said, if we had power, we would execute justice and fairness. We would be open and in the light with how we used our power. We would use it for good and not for evil. Then the pendulum swings and all of a sudden those people who had no power are in power and guess what? Sooner Or later, they are acting exactly the way their oppressors were acting towards them. In fact, here's what I would say. I think they're acting worse. There's no oppression like those who felt oppressed suddenly gaining the upper hand. And all of a sudden, having the power. You know why? They're not just looking to settle the score and make things even, Stephen. They are looking for vengeance. This played out all the time with me and my brothers. If my brother hit me this hard for no apparent reason, I would hit my brother this hard. Why? It's not just even, Stephen. You hit me, I'm gonna hit you. I'm going to add a little bit of force because you hit me for no reason. That was an unprovoked punch. So you get a little bit more on the back end. Now, what is, this, what is this brother going to do? He's going to go, what was that for? Shocked, forgetting that seconds ago he hit me. So he's going to go, bow, like this. And if we're not careful, what happens? Fast forward and broaden the picture. Countries will be at war with countries for centuries that's what happens history of the middle east that's all this is brother punching brother wait a minute punching 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 who does revenge and vengeance belong to god alone what happens when we violate that and we say no no no! vengeance is mine says me i don't exact good judgment i don't exact fair and just treatment and so it has this terrible oppression cycle All of this grows out of Micah 1. What was happening in Micah 1? Remember the the main fault? Why is God so mad? It's because Israel and Samaria cheated on, on him. Idolatry. It's the sin of spiritual adultery. That's why he's so mad. So what happens is this. The first four commandments are all about our relationship with God, right? No other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Honor my name. Honor my day. Set time aside for worship. What happens when you break the first four commandments? What happens to the other six commandments, all of which deal with our relationships? They all go out the window. If I've cheated on God... If I'm not sorry, Jesus, for making worship about something other than you, then I sit on my throne and I continue to give myself and sacrifice myself to another God besides capital G God. And what happens then is this, all the other commandments that he says about how I should treat my parents, about how I should treat my neighbor, about how I should live in my community, they all go out the window. I either reject them outright as, who are you to tell me anything? I'm my own God. Or I simply choose to ignore them. What happened in Micah 1 is cheating on God. What we see in Micah 2 is all the other six commandments being broken down. Do you see why Jesus boils this all down? What's the greatest commandment? What does he say? Love what? The Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. From love of God flows what? Love your neighbor as yourself. What's happening with the leaders is instead of modeling loving neighbor as an outflow of the love God has for us and the love of God that is in us for our neighbors, they are hating their neighbor. You ever get in a fight with someone and you wonder, what are we fighting about? Don't raise your hand. It happens. Spouses do this all the time. We were just cutting tomatoes, and now we're fighting. Why are we fighting? Who really cares about tomatoes? It's not really about tomatoes, is it? It's about something deeper. Do you ever wonder why you fight with people in your mind? People have argument anger fantasies all the time. Oh, yeah, I'd say this to that person. No, you won't. Like, that's the president, and you'll never be near the president. But you think that all the time, right? You ever wonder what causes this? Look at the screen. This is the first part of James 4. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Here we go. That's what we're talking about. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. There's that word, adultery, cheating on God. Do, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Hear me, oppression is real and much oppression is super obvious. It lives right on the surface and we see it and we can call it out as wrong. What's the other flavor? The other flavor of oppression is sneaky. If you're taking notes, write that down. Some oppression is not so obvious. There are people in your life who will tell you, I'm helping you, when really they're hurting you. Mr. Tumnus and Lucy. C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. He's there giving her some tea, some little cakes, She's all happy. She's super excited. And he begins to break down in front of her, saying that he's a bad fawn. And she says, no, you're the nicest fawn I've ever met. Happens to be the only fawn that Lucy has ever met. And she asks, what is it that you've done? He says, it's not something I've done. It's something I'm doing right now. What he's doing is kidnapping Lucy. He's oppressing her, but he was being sneaky about it. He pretended to befriend her when really he was doing something that was hurtful. The Bible goes into great detail not to just show us above the surface, the obvious stuff, but below the surface, the crookedness that is not so obvious. Look back in your Bible at Micah 2 in the first couple of verses. What are people doing while laying awake at night? Are they praying? Are they reviewing scripture in their mind? Are they sitting there not counting sheep, but just counting God's blessings in their life? No! They are scheming wicked plans. We have a huge value in our home not to go to bed angry. You know why? Because we believe God's word. God's word says, don't go to bed angry. Do you know how many people live in my home? A lot. Do you know how much potential there is for anger? A lot. Now, most nights, this is not a problem. There's not a ton to manage. But once in a while, it takes a lot of work to go. We are not going to go to bed angry. And we do that because of this very verse. Satan does some terrible work when we drift off to dreamland on the angry train. You ever drift off to dreamland on the angry train? Man, you are going to bed with anger fantasies, revenge fantasies, and what happens is that just sort of seeps and stews in your mind all night long. God says, don't do it. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Christian, take that verse literally. Do what, it needs, do what needs to be done to not let that happen. When you disobey this, sin is conceived, and by mourning, you are giving birth to evil. That's what's going on in Micah 2. They covet instead of living content. What does covet mean? It means I want what that other person has. They have a field, I want the field. They have a house, I want the house. They have a person, uh, I want that person. They have a future, I want their future. I want it for myself. The condition of their heart is, is the root problem. When leaders in business, leaders in government, leaders in school, leaders in churches, leaders in the home, not only fail to model loving neighbors, but actively model hating their neighbor by their actions and attitudes and words, things get bent. Society gets completely crooked. Now here's a little thought. These that Micah is talking about exploited people by taking their stuff. If it was brute force, I don't know if they need to lay awake thinking and scheming and having strategy sessions about how to do that. If you're just the stronger army and you're coming to sack a little town that has no recourse against you, you just do it. I think this is exposing some of the sneakiness. Maybe they were taking fields of others and exploiting other people around them legally. Maybe these leaders were laying awake going, how could we use a technicality to rob them of their possessions under the guise of helping them or just being law-abiding citizens? Think about today. Do you think this happens today? Do you think there are people looking for loopholes of going, ooh, I think I could lend to that person and really get them in a bind and take and take and take, all the while pretending to help them? I Man, this happens all the time, all around us. It's sneaky oppression. Think about what it means to take a field in these days. For an agrarian society, think farmer, you made your living by your field. So your field just wasn't where you worked, it was where you lived. So if you take my field, and you take, you take my life, you take my inheritance, you take my means of making income, you severely put me at an extreme disadvantage. I've gotten turned on the last few years to a guy named Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is an American um, author and he happens to have grown up as a farmer in Kentucky. And in a book called The World Ending Fire that I listened to this summer, he said this. He said, for agrarians, for farmers, the land is a gift of immeasurable value. To withhold it from some is finally to destroy it for all. He says, for a few powerful people to own and control it all or decide its fate is wrong. Man, this is a whole field of study that's been going on for a really long time in the land of the free. And it's still a fight worth looking at and seeing, wow, there are devious people out there sneakily oppressing uh, others. I love what he writes this. Wendell Berry's formula for a good life and good community is pretty simple. Here it is. Slow down, pay attention, do good work, Love your neighbors, love your place, stay in your place, settle for less, enjoy it more. Does that sound like some good advice? Man, there's a lot of scripture embedded in that. Wendell Berry's writing from a Christian worldview. He's a Christian. So it's not just the land, though, uh, that that is being hated and herded. It's the foreigner and women and children. If you go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, there's a few categories of people. I say this sometimes when I speak at Foster the Bay events, that in society, it's not that everyone is equally valuable, but not everyone is equally vulnerable. Why does God consistently call out the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner? Why? Because they're more vulnerable than other people in society. Not more valuable. All of them are image bearers. It's just they're more vulnerable. Look at verse 8. In verse 8 of Micah 2 it says, "But lately my people have risen up as an enemy." Remember what James said, "Friendship with the world is what enmity with God." It's making yourself an enemy of God when you befriend the world. "But lately my people have risen up as an enemy." You strip the rich Robe from those who pass by trustingly, with no thought of war, that's foreigners. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful homes, that's women. From their young children you take away my splendor forever, that's kids. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with grievous destruction. Think about our city right now. Are these categories still vulnerable? Yes or no? Yeah. I used to work with international students at De Anza College when I worked at Valley Church. We were a mile away. We used to befriend them. We had a huge event. Hundreds of international students every fall I would get to meet. And then when I would drive to work, I would drive by them. And all of them rode bicycles, largely because the countries they came from, that's the mode of transportation. So they would arrive by a bicycle. And as they're riding down the road, I would always go, and honk my horn at them. And they would almost crash. And then they'd, oh, it's Dave. I'd like, that's one of the few people in the city I know. So they'd wave at me. I always got a big kick out of that. No one ever got hurt in that process. Here was good advice to my international friends that I had to learn the hard way. I began to tell students the moment they arrived, hey, when you arrive, if you're not careful, you will be buying a second bike very, very soon. You know why? Because people steal bikes of foreigners in Cupertino all the time. Invest in a really, really good lock and use it every single time. They may have been coming from countries where they did not lock up their bike at all Because there's just hundreds of bikes and you just leave it there But now they're in cupertino. Welcome to cupertino. We're going to rip you off Why are they ripping off the foreigners the international students because they don't know what's going on right now So I would tell them please 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 get a lock And I had to learn that the hard way because I had kids calling me saying hey, can you come pick me up? My bike is stolen And that happened enough times, I'm like, wow, there's the pattern. How about women and children? Do you know that statistically, women are more likely than men to live in poverty? Now, there's all kinds of causes for this, and the reasons for that are probably pretty complex. But that's the stark reality. How about children? Are children at risk in our country? Absolutely. Do you know that in every corner of the globe right now, no matter how advanced and third world, fourth world, or fifth world, or whatever you want to call it, how advanced the society is or how absolutely primitive it is, children are at risk. They are vulnerable. God's message to the ones abusing is that he is devising disaster for them. He is saying to the oppressors, I'm against you. You take land and house, I'm going to take land and house. We're not going to take time to read it. Read chapter 2 carefully. He is going to bring on them the very oppression they are doing to other people. Aren't you glad God's a God of justice? When you're being oppressed, yes you are. If you're the oppressor, man that scares you to death. It ought to scare you straight. Here's what's going to happen historically. Shortly, the Assyrians are going to come invade, and all of this is going to happen. No one from Samaria or Judah is going to be able to escape the disaster that is coming on them. Here's my question. You're going to wrestle with this with community group questions this week. Who has the power in their hands today? It's not just elected people or named leaders, is it? Who are the influencers Who are those with the spotlight and the microphone? And what's their message? Those with the spotlight and the microphone and the influence and the followers on social media, they're the ones telling their truth as the truth. Here's a question for you, thinking person. What's the fruit of their message? What's the fruit of their life? Here's the reality. Many people are listening to Talking Heads and following people on social media, they have no clue what their life is like. They have no idea if they're living up to what they are talking about. Do you know there's one more powerful than all of those people put together? Do you know that he is the one on the side of justice and beauty and restoration? Do you know that he is the one inviting us to partner with him to lead a life and bring about justice? We're in a series called Just Jesus, and justice is sort of embedded into this because it's a giant theme in this book. But just Jesus means this. Only Jesus is able to save us from being the oppressors. Only Jesus is able to give us the ability to march in line with how he is bringing about justice. Jesus alone. One of the injustices that has stirred in this community is the vulnerability of babies, children, and youth going to bed tonight in a government facility instead of a loving, stable home. In our city, we call it foster care. And what's super exciting is this, because of bold, courageous image bearers in this church taking risky steps of faith to enter into foster care. And because there's been a church community that has rallied around and continues to rally around those families, literally now dozens and dozens, in fact, a couple of hundred churches have followed suit. And there's now 200 partner churches in 10 counties for Foster the Bay. This was one of the first five churches that like led the way in that. What I'm here to announce today is something super, super exciting. The vision for Foster the Bay has begun to overflow the cup of the Bay Area. And even though this isn't going public for, I don't know, like a week or a week and a half from now, I know a guy in Foster the Bay. And so I got permission to kind of tilt the scale and show you something super exciting. So I want you to watch this right now.
1: Hi there, my name is Philip Patterson, and I'm the Executive Director of Foster the Bay, and I'm stoked to share with you some really exciting news. Uh, For the first time ever, we are extending our coalition of churches and families outside of the Bay Area. And let me tell you why. Uh, As many of you know, about six years ago, we launched Foster the Bay, and it was in response to an invitation from some social workers in the Bay that told us about a crisis they were experiencing. There were more kids coming into foster care than there were homes that were ready for them. And she said, do you think that there are churches out there that would want to partner with us uh, to help address this? And so um, over the last six years, it's been one of the greatest joys of my life watching the way Bay Area churches and families have stepped forward and responded to that invitation. In fact, there are more than 150 Bay Area churches today across all 10 counties of the Bay um, that have linked arms and are addressing this crisis together we've raised up more than a thousand households that foster parents support friends advocates and because of this there are hundreds of children today that have been welcomed into foster the bay homes it's been so cool to see but what's, what's cool is that it's not just me who's sitting back in amazement and wonder as God builds something really special and unique in the Bay Area. There are actually leaders and churches and families around the country that have seen what God is doing in the Bay Area. And over the last several years, they've reached out to us many times saying, hey, what would it look like for that, that coalition of churches to extend to our area? We'd love to have that same experience, be able to care for the kids in our communities, in our neighborhoods. Uh, You know, if we were willing to, to share the model and the resources that we've developed in the Bay Area outside, it's incredible to think that more churches and more places can care for more kids. The truth is there are thousands of kids right now outside of the Bay Area that need love and care and stability. In fact, we had a leader reach out to us just recently saying that what you all have built in the Bay Area, it wasn't meant to stay there. And so after a whole lot of prayer and conversation and seeking the Lord, We believe that the time is right for us to say yes, and so I'm so excited to announce to you that we are extending our coalition of churches and families outside of the Bay right here into Southern California. I want to take a moment to say thank you to you pastors and foster families and support friends and advocates, to you financial partners. It's because of your yes and your sacrifice and your generosity and your advocacy that now kids, not just in the Bay Area, but in the Bay Area and beyond, are going to experience the love and care that they deserve. This is because of you. And I want to invite you to join us in the next chapter as we say yes together as we become Foster the City.
0: Alright, let me get uh let me get the band to come on back up. Um, man, we are so excited about this. This is something that we've actually been looking at for about three years. We've had people from around the country um, asking to grab our model and do what we've done here elsewhere, and we have just uh, prayed and sensed you no. Know, we want to complete what God's doing here. Uh, there's a guy named Ryan. You could pray for him. He's been in full time pastoral ministry in Orange County, and he has come on full time with us starting July 1st. We began interviewing him in January, and it's just been so exciting to see how God has been moving this forward. Um, I want to leave you with where we're going next week, okay? You have to come back next week. Right now we're in the Central Valley still. We didn't even get to Yosemite. It's coming, okay? So just look at, look at with me. If you're still there in Micah 2, if not, just listen. I want to read it in the New Living Translation. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. And I want you to have a little glimpse toward better that's coming. Micah chapter 2, verse 12 says this. Someday, O Israel, Someday I will gather you. I will gather the remnant who are left. I will bring you together again like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Your leader will break out and lead you out of exile out through the gates of the enemy cities back to your own land your king will lead you the Lord himself will guide you God what a setup for next week God I pray that we would not short circuit things I pray we would sit with Oppressive, revengeful thoughts in our own life. God, that we would cooperate with your process of rebuke. You never are an alarmist for no reason. God, you don't rebuke and confront us with our sin and our wickedness for no reason. You don't rebreak bones for your pleasure. God, it's always for our building up, and we trust you in that. We look forward to this day. God, we know the end of this story. It's King Jesus whose rule will never end. Not only his name has power, but his right arm has power. It's not just his idea and his words, but his actions and his spirit alive in us create change. God, this week we reaffirm, we recommit that we are walking the straight and narrow because of your grace and mercy in our life. It's in Jesus' name, just the name of Jesus, that we recommit our lives to, that we are able to pray, and it's in his name, amen.